This is the word of God, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you have your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right, so y'all came back after last week's talk, huh? We ain't done yet, so I will remind you again, if you have young children, this would be an awesome time to take them to kids' ministry, rush down there, get them checked in, hurry back, because you're not going to want to miss this. You certainly do not want to have these conversations later in the day with them. Uh, unless you have older children, then it may be a really good day to have conversations with them. If this is your first time, we want to welcome you here, and chances are you had no idea what you were in for today, but we're glad that you showed up. And listen, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, uh, you, may, you may be glad after today, frankly. Uh, you're off the hook today, because here, here's what we know is as Christians, we are held to a higher standard because we're living by God's word, which are things you may not be used to hearing or things that you probably even agree with. You, you may not agree with what we're gonna say, but hang with me today, because look, we started in 1 Corinthians chapters five through seven talking about judging people. And we said, look, our role is not to judge people outside the church, but it's to judge the sins inside the church, to get our own house in order first, because look, people out in the world are gonna act like worldly people. What do you expect? Of course, but we who claim to follow Christ, he expects and empowers us to live differently because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're called to be holy because God is holy. But I want you to know Christianity is not a faith for perfect people. It is a faith for messed up people. God is the one who makes us holy, even through all the sin. And some of us, it may be sexual sin. In fact, many of us, it may be sexual. But for whatever sins that we've gone through, there are no perfect people, and that's why we need Jesus. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find the, the power to change. And so we're striving to be like him. So listen, if you're not a believer in Christ, our goal is not to try and conform your behavior from the outside. Rather, our goal is to try to lead you to this Jesus who, who gave his life for you so that you could be forgiven and be changed from the inside out. Uh, so if you're not a believer, just I, I would encourage you at least to to think about what we're talking about today and maybe even try applying it and see what difference it might make in your life. But I'm glad you're here giving God a few moments to speak what we, be we believe it to be true, truth into your life, especially regarding sexual matters. Because, hey, he created us male and female. This was all his idea. He's the designer uh, of sex. He made us male and female until surprise, 
what you hear today is not going to be typically what you hear out in the world. And our, all week long, our eyes and ears and minds and hearts are filled up with the world's perspective on all this stuff. And so much sex talk and obsession with these things, yet it's nothing new because going back 2,000 years, this city that Paul started a church in, the city of Corinth, was known as a hub of sexual vice. And yet these Christians are now being called to live in a very countercultural way in monogamous marriage despite their backgrounds of all their sexual experiences and their alternative lifestyles. God holds them to a new ideal. So let me ask you, how many here have an ideal marriage? And all the ladies are saying, you better get your hand up right now. No, we know. We know better. There are no ideal marriages because there are no ideal people. No perfect marriages because there's no perfect people. Good news, we're not talking about having a perfect marriage today. We're talking about having an ideal marriage. What is God's ideal? And we know this from Jesus because in Matthew 19, he references God's original design and intent for marriage when he's asked about divorce. Here's what he says, verses 4 through 6. Everybody, let's just read this out loud together. And maybe this is the first time you've heard it since you first got married. Okay, here it is. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. So that's the ideal. One man and one woman joined together in a permanent bond that should never be separated by anything other than death. That's what marriage is according to God, no matter what society says or what the government certifies. Because God is the giver and designer of marriage. And really it has been the foundation of a more stable and secure society that has especially benefited women and children. So we believe the, the scriptures teach this very distinct view of marriage that is based on a covenant relationship that involves not only the couple, but God as well. It's a vow before God. And so that's the ideal that we wanna lift up and value. And admittedly, we haven't done a good job of that. Christians haven't always upheld that ideal of marriage very well. I mean, is the world looking at our marriages as the ideal? Probably not so much. And some of you, you've missed out on that ideal. And it may be your fault, it may be your spouse's fault. We're going to talk about divorce next week, ideal divorce. Some of you have yet to experience marriage or you intend never to experience it. And we're going to be talking about ideal singleness in two weeks. So, hey, I want to invite you back for both weeks and, and bring somebody with you if you dare. But today we're going to be talking about this one flesh relationship and what it's supposed to look like. Because remember, Paul, who's writing this, is single. And uh, he says that's a good thing. So that's why chapter 7 begins with Paul saying it's good that a man not have sexual relations with a woman because there are benefits to a single life, specifically being able to devote your time and energy and focus to your primary relationship with the Lord himself. And yet he recognizes that's not the norm to stay single. God created us as sexual beings and those sexual needs are to be met within the boundaries of marriage. And that's our big idea, is that marriage is the situation for sexual satisfaction. And let's be real clear about this. Sex is a good thing, all right? God made sex pleasurable and enjoyable, and, and we're very grateful for that. It provides all kinds of 
personal positive benefits. It releases all these endorphins and dopamine and oxytocin, which provides stress relief and, and pain reduction and uh, provides comfort and just puts you in a better mood. So you can say, honey, come on, it's good for you. I'm thinking of you in this, it's good. <laughs> But it's not just for that. It's not just for recreational use or to satisfy your libido. I mean, it's actually good. It is morally and spiritually good. Because some people have this jacked up view of Christians that we're somehow anti-sex. No, 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 no. Listen, we are not repressed prudes. We're just anti-sex sin. We're very pro-sex because we're pro-marriage. It's just we want to experience sex the way God designed it to be in a healthy, permanent, unifying relationship without guilt, without games, without regrets, without perversion, okay? In fact, here's what recent studies are showing. Guess what? The couples who experience the highest levels of sexual satisfaction and relationship quality are whom? Highly religious people fare far better than non-religious people when it comes to this. So yes, boom, all right. So if you are in, not in one of those ideal marriages, it, it, well, then you shouldn't be having sex. It's it, simple as that. And if you want to have sex, then you should get married, all right? Don't, but don't just grab the first guy or girl you find and run off with them because it's not about that. What I'm saying is you should begin to work toward marriage. That is to prepare and plan for and pursue a good godly marriage. Because here's the ideal for a Christian. We are to marry someone else who is a Christian. And I know some of you have entered into a relationship where it's not that way, maybe before becoming to Christ, uh, or maybe even after you got married, you became a Christian, and now there's this kind of spiritual incompatibility in your home, and it's created some tension and some rifts. But that's still a valid marriage and can be a great marriage. And in fact, your, your goal is to be an ideal spouse and to work it out and make it as, as great a marriage as you can make it. But the ideal, the ideal is that you meet somebody who loves the Lord just as much as you do and is spiritually and theologically compatible. That's what Paul says in his next letter to the Corinthians. He says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be in a close partnership with somebody who doesn't share your faith. And what closer partnership is there than when two become one in marriage? In fact, later on in this chapter in 1 Corinthians, he'll speak to the widows and say, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must what? Belong to the Lord. So the only option, if you're not gonna remain celibate, is to marry a Christian. Because God knows you and he loves you. Listen, he's not trying to keep you from a good life. He wants for you a better life, a holy life. He wants eternal life for you. And so what I'm saying is that the, the way this works is you find that right person, you get the premarital counseling, you do the work ahead of time, get hitched, then start living together and enjoy a pure marriage bed. Because scripture says in Hebrews 13, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So I know the norm today is typically living together before marriage, and that's even become the norm in the church. A lot of Christians are doing that, because, but that's not what Christians should do. We shouldn't be buying into the world's way of thinking on this, that, that are promoting living together first as something that's actually good, that it's, it's, um, 
It's good practice for marriage because it helps you know if you, you can live with this person. It helps you know if you're sexually compatible. But come on, if you really love somebody, you're going to work things out just fine. Believe me. And uh, there's not going to be an issue with sexual compatibility. It may take some... Uh, some negotiation and compromise. It may take some trial and error. It may take some uh, time and communication, but you're going to figure out sexual compatibility. That's not an issue. Here's what I'm saying. You can't practice marriage. You're either fully committed or you're not. The only thing cohabitation has been found to be good for is good practice for divorce. Because you know this, half the couples who live together don't even end up getting married, and of the ones who do, they have higher divorce rates. Because look, you don't just have these biological urges. You have an urge for companionship, for partnership, for intimacy, and that can only really be met in marriage. Don't take a shortcut in a relationship with someone you don't have a lifelong commitment to. God can't bless a couple that's playing house and pretending to be committed when they're really not. He said, but we're married in our hearts. Nice try. You ain't fooling anybody. God's not fooled by that. You're not married in your heart, and you're not the exception to the rule. It's morally and biblically wrong and practically counterproductive. It's not good for you. So if you're claiming to be a Christian, you've got three options. If you're living together, first, break up. I mean, if you know it ain't going anywhere, if you're just messing around right now, break up, get it over with, move on. Number two, you could move to separate residences and you could continue to date one another. Or number three, you could start the process of getting married now. Commit to celibacy and don't delay this any longer with excuses about trying to find the right dress or we gotta rent the perfect reception hall because who are you trying to impress? You trying to impress people with a fancy wedding or are you trying to impress God with obedience? You know, trust me, weddings do not have to be expensive. We can make sure of that, all right? Uh, don't, don't play that game. Don't be so concerned about a big wedding at the expense of having a good marriage. So sex is for marriage. Marriage is for sex. That's one, that's one of the big reasons why we do get married because sex is a fire and fire is a good thing when it's contained in the fireplace. But when it gets out of the fireplace, it becomes a dangerous, disastrous thing. And some of you know that by experience because you've been there. You, you've, you've been with people that you thought you were in love with and you thought they were committed to you but they cheated on you or you thought you were going to get married to them and then you broke up and it became so much more damaging than it should have ever been and now you've got regrets and you've got remorse so that's why God says don't don't go there save sex for marriage and if you've already gone too far well you can't undo that you can't unring a bell but you can commit from now on that God I want to I want to do right I don't want to do wrong anymore. Forgive me, Lord, and help me to do better by your spirit because I want to have a good marriage. And here's the thing. If we weren't so preoccupied about sex in so many ways, we wouldn't have all these issues. But Jesus recognizes that. He knows celibacy isn't for everybody. So we go back to Matthew 19, and he talks about divorce and marriage and says the ideal is a male and a female together in one flesh bonded for the rest of their lives. And the disciples say, Lord, that's tough. He said, yeah, you're right, it is. And Jesus replied, not everybody can accept this word, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, meaning some people are just not able to have normal physical relations. 
for whatever reason, physically. And then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Okay, that's like back in the day there would be slavery and, and it would be forced on them. Maybe where they were taking care of, of the women and, you know, so there would be no funny business going on. They were made a eunuch. Or maybe some sort of physical accident made them a eunuch. But then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Somebody who chooses to live in celibacy so that they can devote their time and energy and focus to the Lord. And the one who can accept this should accept it. Okay? And the Apostle Paul was one of those who could accept that. And he, he's single and he says, hey, I wish you all could be like I am, to have this gift of celibacy. And you say, it's a gift? Where's the receipt for that? I want to take that thing back right now. Or I'm going to re-gift that to somebody else. I don't want that. that Paul says, look, if you can do this, if you can stay unmarried, it, it, that's good. Go for it. But if you're still needing that kind of intimacy and you, your desire for sex is still strong, go ahead and get married because it's better to get married than to burn with passion because don't let that fire get out of control. And even more so as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit within us. The Lord is living in us. And so when we unite ourselves physically with somebody, we have united the Lord with that person too. We have involved him in that illicit union. And more so because we have the Holy Spirit, he produces in us spiritual fruit, these Christ-like characteristics like self-control. And so, yes, we can manage our passions because God says, I won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. I will provide a way out for you. So that means, no, I got no excuses. I'm not going to fulfill my own sexual desires by myself through lustful sexual imagery or, or um, pornographic visuals or through promiscuity, or th through prostitution, because we are called to a higher standard, to holiness. Now we're going to see next week how adultery really does break that one, one flesh bond. But as always, Jesus raises the bar. He says it goes beyond adultery. Matthew 5, he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that's our goal as a Christian, to have that kind of relationship. And you know what's really cool here? Is Paul writes that we actually have a marital duty to our spouse. We have a duty to satisfy our spouses. Folks, that is a good, good verse. That's a good verse. That is a command in Scripture that we are to have sexual relations with our spouse. And get this, it's a mutual one, which was kind of a revolutionary thing back then. So he's not saying not only women, you have a duty, to your husband, but husbands, you have a duty to your wives. And so men, you just show up and say, yes, man, reporting for duty. I'm... <laughs> it's a duty, but it's a good duty. And because and, that's one of the major reasons we do get married. It's not the only reason, but it's a big deal. And so we have an obligation to meet one another's needs like that. Not in selfish lust, but in selfless love. We're there to care for one another, to serve one another. That means it should never be something that is forced or pressured or demanded. And it shouldn't be something that should be pleaded for or withheld. Because, that, yeah, there are times for a reasonable refusal but it should never be used as a bargaining chip, as a tool of manipulation, or used in any kind of power plays. For example, a couple went to one of those marriage weekend retreats. Frank took his wife, Debbie, and they were sitting there listening to the instructor ask, you know, how well do you know your spouse? Husbands, can you name your spouse's, your wife's favorite flower? And Frank leans over to Debbie and gently touches her arm and whispers in her ear, 
It's gold medal all purpose, isn't it? And thus began Frank's imposed time of celibacy. Sometimes it's not, it's not by choice, but that's what Paul says, is you can have mutual consent. We're not going to do anything for a time so that we can devote ourselves to, to more spiritual matters, to prayer. But sometimes uh, we need a, a break so that we can work out our problems, right? Because it's no fun uh, living as estranged roommates in the same house when we got marital problems going on. So we, we say, let's work this out. Let's, let's go to a Christian counselor. Let's work out our junk because it's no fun sleeping with the enemy, right? Or maybe you read a Christian book together. And I'm going to put some up on the screen for you so you might want to take out your camera, take a shot of these books because it's not just about sex things. It's marriage. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. These are all good books. I've read a lot of these. We're going to put them on social media later today as well. Books like The Love Dare, Love and Respect, His Needs, Her Needs, Five Love Languages, For Better or For Best, If Only He Knew, The Act of Marriage, Intended for Pleasure, Sheet Music, The Meaning of Marriage. Folks, those are all good Christian books. And Paul says a wife's body belongs to her husband not as property but she has surrendered her sole authority over her body and it goes both ways it's a two-way street the husband's body body belongs to his wife which means that we care about one another's health we want to do whatever we can to you know be reasonably uh, attractive to our spouses and so we invite that you know if if penny wants my hair to look a certain way that's what she's going to get right because i don't know what looks good i thought all my my big 70s poofy hair looked great for years didn't listen to her she said no come on that's great honey no it wasn't it wasn't and if she wants me to grow a little bit of stubble she's gonna get that and she has a say so over the clothes I wear because I have no idea what looks good and I never did so I, I give her that kind of input it's a wise thing to do but folks men be very careful because when the, when this goes the other direction when she asks how do I look in this choose your words very very carefully on that all right because that, that also means we're going to be respectful of one another in the bedroom, okay? Which means that you've got to communicate about all the what's and when's and how's, right? Because uh, God made us male and female, and that means we're very different, and we have different needs and different expectations, and so we got to talk those things out because we bring all these assumptions into it, and we expect mind-reading and we, we bring in all these uh, messed up ideas and assumptions and uh, all these, uh, uh, this baggage and this ignorance into the bedroom. And so we got to talk these things out. There probably needs to be some negotiation and compromise. But listen, we never demand something that would be offensive to our spouse, okay? And we never try to leave our spouse vulnerable to sexual temptation from somebody else. Now listen, that you can never blame uh, the spouse whose husband or wife has done the cheating, okay? The, the, that person can never say, well, you made me do it. No, it's your fault. It's not their fault. You chose to commit that sexual sin or whatever kind of sin it is. But what I am saying is that we can create conditions where it becomes more possible for us to... Uh, cheat either physically or emotionally with somebody else because we've let our marriage go. We, we don't show the care for one another like we used to. We become inattentive and neglectful and distant. And that's not just about sex. That's about the relationship itself, which is why you can have a wife beginning to confide in another man 
who's not her husband in a way she should not. And a husband having these secret conversations with his work wife that he should have only with his real wife because there's no such thing as a work wife. All right? We got to be there for each other. And that means that we don't invite third parties into our bedrooms as well, either physically, graphically, or digitally. You don't have prostitutes in your bed. And that's what pornography becomes, is voyeuristic prostitution, right? Because you're inviting somebody else in. You say, well, but it's not prostitution, it's free. Well, don't kid yourself, somebody's paying for it. It's always monetized. The fact that you're paying for a, an internet bill or you're paying for that phone or that computer monetizes the whole thing. And it doesn't even matter because it's just wrong. Even if you get permission from your spouse to bring it in or you both invite it in, it's wrong biblically and morally and again practically counterproductive because it's designed to stimulate lustful uh, excitement in you for somebody who is not your spouse. Come on, that's not wise. So to summarize, marriage is the situation for sexual satisfaction because God has created it for higher purposes. And let me give you two real quick. One, sex is for having children. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. He designed it so that it takes a man and a woman to have a child. Now, you don't have to have children, but if you're going to have children, that's where it should happen, in the commitment of marriage, because a child needs both a mother and a father. He needs to be brought up in a home where they're committed to one another for at least the next 18 years, right? But, but for life, sex isn't made for a couple who aren't committed to raising a child together, because here's where we are in this nation. Uh, we have a, a situation where nearly 20% of all pregnancies now end in abortion. And 90% of those come from young, typically young unmarried women who neither want nor are ready to have a child. And of the births that do take place, nearly 40% are born into single parent families. And you all know this, single parents face much greater challenges unnecessarily and that kids raised in single parent homes are missing out on some things or lacking what the other parent brings to that home. And I'm not going to go into it, to all the statistics, but especially when fathers aren't there in the home for their children, those kids are more likely to be poor, they're more likely uh, to... to be involved in, in uh, drug and alcohol abuse, they're more likely to drop out, they're more likely to have health and emotional problems. Boys are more likely to be involved in crime. Girls are more likely to get pregnant as teenagers. So fathers are incredibly important to the family. But listen, children ultimately belong to the Lord. And we want to do everything that we can to meet the needs of those children that God has given us. And that means overcoming less than ideal situations. And that's what a single parent home is. And I know because I was raised in one. I, I know what this is about. And, and there's some single parents who are doing an incredible job. And we're so grateful for them. And there's some kids who turn out great in single parent homes. But that's not the value we want to lift up. Because that's not the, the design of God. And so what I'm saying is if you are not ready to raise a child, to have a, a commitment to that person for the next 18 years to raise that child, then you're not ready to have sex because that's what it's for. But it's not just for that. Secondly, sex is for oneness. It creates this unique intimacy. God designed it to be something like an emotional and spiritual super glue. Okay, now you're not going to get this sex ed 
lesson anywhere in school, but I'm gonna give it to you here. All right, when you have a relationship with somebody where there's no sex involved, it's like two pieces of paper being taped together, okay? There's a bond there, but when it's time to separate, you can pull them apart and they will remain intact. But when you introduce sex into the relationship, now there's a super glue bond and you try to tear them apart and you're gonna do great damage to both because you're ripping apart something that was not designed to ever be separated. And it does greater damage than even you're aware of. And that's why it should only take place in marriage where there's full commitment and where there can be the fullest expression of love because love is not just a feeling. It's not just about falling in love and feeling emotions. Love is a command of God. It's something we do. It's acting without feeling. You don't have to feel love to be loving. And that's why marriage, duh, includes a vow. You need a vow to make a covenant before the Lord to say, I'm going to love you even when I don't feel like it. Because that's what love is for. It gets us through times when we don't feel very loving. We're still going to love. And it goes even deeper than that because Paul compares marriage to the relationship Christ has with his church. And so he says to wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And husbands, you love your wives like Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up, laid down his life for her. There's something deeper going on here. See, Paul, like Jesus, refers back to God's original design and intent in Genesis when he says in Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Okay, we got that. But he takes it to a more profound level to say this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. And that's why we need our marriages to be the ideal so that they reflect that profound mystery of the unity between Christ and us. Because in marriage, there can be true oneness, not only in body, but in spirit, in mind, in direction and purpose. Do you realize your marriage has a purpose, a higher purpose? And if you don't know what that purpose is, then you're gonna go through life making it up as you go along. And that's why there's so much uh, conflict and complication and competition and infidelity and all that nonsense because you don't know what your marriage is there for. You think about, it's about making me happy. And God has something higher for you, a higher calling with higher standards. The good news is if you've fallen short of God's standards, whether it's sex, marriage, or anything else, we have a God who specializes in helping less than ideal people, people like you and me. A God who offers forgiveness, who offers healing and strength to overcome whatever consequences we have to deal with. And if that's the kind of God you need in your life, I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. And we're, we're praying together. And if you're ready to follow Christ, if, if you haven't done that yet, pray in your heart right now. You can use my words. You can put it in your own words. Just like, Lord, I believe that you love me because you proved it by sending your son to die for me. So I'm giving you my sins. I'm giving you my past. I repent and I put my trust in Jesus as the answer. I believe he's your son who paid the penalty that I deserved and I receive him as my savior. I'm ready to become a new creation and be filled with your spirit so I can live for you. Thank you for being faithful to me. Strengthen me to be faithful to you. And we're still praying, but right now if you're already a Christian,
Maybe you need to pray along with me now something like this. Lord, strengthen my marriage or uh, restore my marriage to what it should be. Help us to overcome our problems that there could be repentance and forgiveness in our home because I know we're not ever going to be perfect because I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. But would you enable me through your teaching and through your spirit to become better, for our marriage to become more ideal. And Lord, help me to be the kind of spouse that you designed me to be, the kind of parent you call me to be. Help me to be faithful in my home. Discipline my desires with self-control, Lord. Fill me with a selfless love for my spouse. Or, or as I'm waiting for the right kind of person that you've designated to be my spouse, keep me in purity with patience because I'm praying it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, you can't, you can't undo the past. You can't fix everything that's been broken. But we have a Lord who redeems. Jesus can take away the guilt. He can remove the burden of shame. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. And so whatever it is you're dealing with, it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be sex or marriage or any of that stuff. Whatever way that you've fallen short, he wants to give you a hope for a better life. He wants to give you the promise of eternal life.